Hello and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. I'm Jeff Hopkins and I'm joined by my good friends Richard Manfredi and Michael Winfield. Hey, this is Richard. Hey, this is Michael. Richard and Michael spend most of their time arguing with each other about the Mount Rushmore of life, the four things that best represent a certain topic. They've asked me to jump in and serve as judge and jury to decide who's right on this week's topic, one and done albums. Michael Winfield won the last taping, so he's going to go first. Hey, so my one and done, you know, I tend to put a lot of weird restrictions on who should be up there. Right. And my first sort of category, because I can only think about these things in terms of category. I don't think about these things in terms of a, the top four. As in the four that should be the most represented on there. Like no, no, the no, whole no. point of this. No, no. I, I, I just don't think of it in terms of like the four best yada, yada, yada. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not putting Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and uh-oh, we're down that rabbit hole already. Yeah, already. That's where uh, we're I think of things in terms of what is best representative of what should be up there to represent the entire category. So, sure, got it. Uh, so for albums, uh, side projects are a big deal with musicians. Sure. So the first category that I chose was side projects, and the album that I chose was The Postal Service's Give Up. This came out in 2003, uh, the same year that Ben Gibbard also put out Transatlanticism with Death Cab for Cutie. This was recorded with uh, Jimmy Tamborello from Dintel. And, uh, I mean, they're named the Postal Service because they traded tapes back and forth through the mail. So, take that, you stupid fucking cloud. Your, <laughs> your hatred for technology whilst making a podcast is ironic. Unless Google winds up sponsoring this, this podcast. Yeah. In, which, in which case, we love you. Uh, yeah, in which case, uh, cloud's the way to go. And I'm really interested in Ben Gibbard and Jimmy Tamborello's next project, Cloud. <laughs> uh, this was an incredible album that I remember when it came out at the time. I saw them in concert at Crocodile in Seattle when I was there. And it was it was so different from what I heard from Death Cab, who was a, I was a big fan of. Right. And so indicative of like this indie rock electronica scene that kind of peaked around then and then kind of went away. And right. it was just like this weird little perfect moment in time that I thought was just incredible. I quiet on the set. You know what's interesting about this one, I think, and this is a good choice. I don't have it on there, but it's a good choice. It's one of those examples of the one-off, particularly a side project, where arguably the side project becomes as or more successful than the original bands where the people came from. Yeah. I mean, I think more people know from such great heights than probably any Death Cab song. Like, if you're just a regular kind of casual music fan, if you hear that song, you know that from 10,000 commercials and hearing it on the radio all the time. Richard, what's your first? So, I kind of, my first one, I'm kind of going for uh, something similar. Um, and that it was also a uh, sort of super group. And this was kind of the ultimate 90s super group. Um, I'm going with uh, Temple of the Dog and the uh, their self-titled debut and thus far only album. So if uh, you guys remember, Temple of the Dog was essentially Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. It was essentially members of Soundgarden and also Pearl Jam. What's really interesting for this one to me, um, two things. One, I think this is the most '90s album that has that was ever made. You know, secondly, I had always thought that it was like something where they were both famous. They came together, did this album. I knew it was like a tribute to Andrew Wood, who was the uh, lead singer of Mother Love Bone, which was like this really seminal Seattle band. He died like '91 or something like that. I didn't realize the whole 
timing of this, it's really interesting. Chris Cornell actually started writing the songs after, right after Andrew Wood died. He invited uh, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, uh, who were in Mother Love Bone, to work on the project with him. They brought in Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, who wound up eventually becoming Pearl Jam's drummer, and also Mike McCready, who wound up becoming Pearl Jam's guitarist. Basically, he just said every member of Pearl Jam. And then, fascinating, this is even better. So, Eddie Vedder was, I think, auditioning for the to be Mookie Blaylock's uh, lead singer, which was the band that eventually became Pearl Jam, because they realized what a stupid name Mookie Blaylock was, and I guess Pearl Jam's a lot better. It is a lot better. It is? It's better than Mookie Blaylock. Well, it's no, better. No offense to. I, I hope that there is a there is an ironic band, a, an ironic Pearl Jam cover band out there called Mookie Blaylock somewhere. Right. Uh, so he had come up to audition for what eventually became Pearl Jam. He was kind of hanging around the studio, wound up doing backing vocals, and the song "Hunger Strike" wound up becoming sort of a duet, almost on accident. And the album comes out a few months after that, sells like seventy thousand copies. Nobody really cares. Like it's a lot of good reviews. Nobody cares. About a year and a half later, AM Records, after Bad Motorfinger had come out from Soundgarden, which was like this big hit, and then obviously 10 comes out, which is this massive hit, they sort of realized, wait a second, didn't we put out that whole album that was basically Soundgarden and Pearl Jam doing an album together? We should probably re-release that. So they did wind up becoming a platinum-selling album, and it's it holds up. It's a really good album. It's still, you listen to it, like I said, it is probably the most 90 grungiest thing it's pretty much all of seattle like kind of wrapped up in like a nice half hour long package I'm going to jump in here real quick. I'm sorry, Jeff, to cut you off from your from your moving us along. But I'll, I'll mention my number two, which is right in line with Richard. And that is Apple by Mother Love Bone. Mm. And it is a garbage album. <laughs> it, like, I'm another eagle star. It's not very like it's not very good. It's not very interesting. It has these weird mid mid. It's like somewhere in between grunge and like this L.A. hard rock scene, right? Which I think Andrew Wood really represented. It was very bombastic. He had uh, like these really big vocals, and he was like the next big star. And then he died from a, a heroin overdose. overdose. Yeah, Temple of the Dog was kind of like this tribute of sorts to their friend and to the sound. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's weird because if this guy didn't die, and this was under my category of uh, just taken before their time, Mm -hmm. like there might not have been like a, a grunge sound or or like a, a grunge battle that led to something important. Like there's this weird thing that happens in music where there are these bands that are two sides of the coin. Right. And sometimes like there's no, 
Britney Spears without Christina Aguilera, and there's no Pearl Jam without Nirvana, mm-hmm. and there's no Tupac and Biggie and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it's easy to get, like, childish with it, but, like, it's amazing how, like, these two bands or two artists that are effectively the same thing that you just take a side on, and that's what kind of pushes it forward. I mean, you could take it to right. sports and be Tom Brady and Peyton Manning or whatever. Sure, kind of push each other. Yeah, but... There was no one that was a fan of, like, you kind of took sides. You were a Pearl Jam guy or you're a Nirvana guy. Right. For whatever reason. Like, I liked, I liked both. Right, right. Wait, wait, hold on. Richard, who's, were you a Nirvana guy or a Pearl Jam guy? Um, I was a Nirvana guy. I was a Pearl more Jam than guy. A, more, I mean, more than Pearl Jam. But it's funny, like, now I, mean, I look back on it, it's like, I, I like them both now. But right. at the time, you kind of pick sides. One thing I would say it's interesting is with Mother Love Own, and you mentioned when they break up, it kind of has these, like, butterfly effect all throughout the Seattle grunge scene. Yeah. Have you ever seen the footage of Stone, not Stone pilots of Alice in Chains when they were a metal band playing like the Sunset Strip like in the 80s. We've seen, I know I've seen um, the Pearl Jam 20 documentary. Mm -hmm. There might be bits and pieces on there where there's this whole side of the grunge scene that you didn't really know what happened that was a lot harder. Right. But I can't, I don't know if I've seen anything else it, besides that. So I'll see if I can post the link to the YouTube on on, the, on our uh, homepage, MountRushmorePodcast.com. Self, selfless plug. What's funny about this is like all these kind of redefines what you think of as a band because it almost, from what you're talking about, it would almost sound like in Seattle in every garage or rehearsal room, all these bands are always just kind of playing with each other, promiscuously jumping around from one group to another. And that when we think of a one and done band, it's really just an instance where somebody was hitting record on that right. thing. So it's like almost like uh, if you think of your marriage versus some person you talked to that day, if if somebody would have uh, captured in a photo, they probably could have associated you with that person. Yeah, It almost seems like I, I'm kind of fascinated by that because those guys probably all played with each other before they got a recording contract anyway. Sure. Right? Sure. And it, just a, one last thing on this. I think part of it is really just that idea that, okay, there was this kind of metal element to the grunge scene. And the, what we think of as like the grunge movement was really a lot of different pieces here and there. And Mother Love Bone was certainly... There's puppetry, there's performance art. Right. There was a the, there was a mime. Mime, bakery. Yeah, some, you, know, and, you can make a lot of great puppets out of flannel sweaters. <laughs> right. <and shirts. laughs> yeah. Indeed. Um, but, you know, if, you know, let's say Andrew Wood doesn't die and Mother Love Bone winds up becoming the breakout band. Maybe the whole entire grunge scene becomes this more metal-influenced thing. It's just or, really wild. Or it could be that they don't. I mean, I, it was Yeah, probably, you don't know. It was probably a better chance that this sound that was dying out kind of just started to fade away and things didn't happen the way... Like, things... Uh, like, I can't imagine... The album's not very good, like that Mother Love Bone. It's it's not like it was anything interesting. Yeah. But what was interesting was, unfortunately, this, this guy passed away, and it kind of spurred music in a different way because of that. Right. It becomes like this. I mean, there were, there were no Green Apple Quick Step, let's be honest. All right, Richard, what's your number two? Uh, my number two, it's actually to kind of piggyback off of this a little bit, or at least, I think, a story with some similar elements. I'm going with Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs by Derek and the Dominoes which I think has the story of heroin involved with it because Eric Clapton, at the point where he's recording this, uh, it was like 70, 71, I think, deep in his heroin phase, also has that idea of kind of being gone too soon because Dwayne Allman was a big part of the band. He wasn't technically in the band to start out with, winds up kind of coming along, recording a couple of songs, most famous being Layla, kind of being the second guitarist on this, which is still to this day one of the most amazing guitar songs ever.
And then Dwayne Allman dies in a motorcycle accident, I think, a year or two after that. So there's also that element of, okay, these guys did this. Maybe they would have put more albums out. We don't know. But this is kind of, this is what you've got. But it's probably the best blues rock album maybe ever made. And it's just fascinating that it was made in these really trying circumstances. Clapton's, you know, not in the Yardbirds. He's not in Cream. People don't think he can be someone who's leading a band, a real solo artist. He's deeply in love with George Harrison's uh, wife. Uh, spoiler alert. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Whoops. My bad. My bad, guys. And he's kind of drowning his sorrows in alcohol and heroin. And he winds up serving as the, uh, to be the backup band. Uh, in the backup band for this like soul revival band that was called Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. And he does this for like a year, year and a half. And the rest of the guys in the backing band, he said, well, why don't we go ahead and do some other stuff? Winds up being the backing band for George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. They decide to do an album on their own. Go see an Allman Brothers show. He invites Dwayne Allman to come by. They record a couple, two, three songs. And then actually wasn't that big of a hit when it came out. Didn't chart in the UK. Only made number 16 in the US. Of course, now we look back on it. It's like one of those seminal 70s, like I said, blues rock albums. Yeah. And in every Martin Scorsese movie where somebody's getting murdered. <laughs> right. Montage, which is funny because the uh, reading about the, the uh, drummer, Jim Gordon, who did the piano riff on yeah. Layla current residence in prison where he will remain probably for the rest of his life after i love this guy's biography because he played on so many songs of the year he's so many grammy award-winning songs he plays on drums and piano on layla mm-hmm. and later in life he's un- un- undiagnosed schizophrenia he kills his mother with a hammer that's also on his uh, on his record well that's that's, that's also a one hit but that's, that's, a one that's, hit. that's totally <laughs> different kind of one hit sort of thing right there what's your number three michael my third choice uh, was under the category of, oh, they're still coming back. Oh, they're going to put out another album. Oh, I, uh, yeah. No, I, what are you talking about? Of course, yeah. They're putting out another album. It was a band called uh, The Avalanches from 2000. It's a, probably a l- pretty little-known band. They're this, they're this electro kind of funk kind of weird Australian band that put out this one album that is a mix of kind of hip-hop sounds, and they use a lot of sourcing from other clips and TV. And it's this weird, perfect thing that I never want to see in concert. Right. But I only want to exist. It's the one band that uh, is the only band that I want to get off of this Mount Rushmore because I want a second album. Okay. And they're very interesting in that they are kind of constantly threading to put out another album or one's You hear a rumor about it or something? Yeah, we're two weeks out. And it's coming out and it's going to be great. And it's very trippy and weird. And I don't know. There's just something like really great about it that. Does part of you want them not to? Like there's something that's so special. Perhaps it would ruin the magic if they did. I I would 100% respect that as well, where this is the only document of their existence, and then it goes away, and then you're like, well, they did this one perfect thing, right. and you're not going to ruin it by that crappy well, follow-up I, album, The Strokes. Well, well, Z- 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 Zapruder made one film, and it was great. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they couldn't get the budget for the second one. You said this is the only one you'd want to knock off your Rushmore. Does that mean you don't want another Postal Service album? I can't, I, I don't know. Or do you feel like that that's just like, it was such a perfect encapsulation yeah, of I that? Yeah, ki- I kind of don't want another Postal Service album as well. Sorry. Sorry, Ben. Sorry, Jimmy. But like, it's true. It's like, it's strange because I think it was 17 tracks. Right. It was perfect from start to end. And all of the songs flowed from one to the other. It just did this weird thing. It wasn't super important in the world. It didn't create any sort of movement. It was just kind of there. Right. And then poof, it's gone. Yeah. Richard, what's your number three? Well, I've kind of noticing, I didn't set out to really do like a theme, but it's kind of as Michael does often kind of in categories. But I'm kind of realizing that a lot of mine, I think all four of mine that I'm doing fit into this category of encapsulating a certain scene or a certain period in time, you know, with a grunge or blues rock. Uh, Next one certainly fits into that list. It's Out of Step by Minor Threat. Minor Threat uh, in Mackay, etc. Really kind of solidified the hardcore genre and that whole ethos the whole dc scene it was like them and bad brains on the west coast you had black flag and a few other bands but really this album when you go back and think about okay the hardcore punk movement what's the one album and the one band that really kind of summed that up last i think they had a couple of eps that came out before or after that but this was the only one full album and really that you'd hear so many other bands you know dave grohl's talked about this just a lot of bands talk about how that kind of diy ethic you got that from minor threat and then when Nina mckay left and went on to fugazi you had that as well you know minor threat has a song called straight edge which pretty much defined the whole straight edge movement like that for better or for worse and of course michael most importantly we wouldn't have cm punk if we didn't have minor threat so there there, what did that thing? They're the best damn band that's ever been. No, uh, Not, the Minor Threat's great. I mean, I just they're for me growing up as a kid, you know, in Central California, being like fourteen, realizing that heavy music didn't have to be Guns and Roses or ACDC. Right. There's other stuff that was out there. It was. You know, it's one of those, you know, like they say about like the one of those bands that only sold 20,000 copies, but every uh, person who heard it sure. started a band. They're, uh, they're they're on the Mount Rushmore of punk bands that are important only to people who are into punk bands. Slash, I was never angry enough in my youth to get into this. Oh, okay. I honest, I, I, you know, doing some research, I looked at this and the name kept popping up and it was just like this. This was never my thing. Right. I was never into like a hardcore punk scene. I, it just it just wasn't something that I got into so I could really understand and relate to. Mm-hmm. So while I understand it was important at the time, right. it wasn't important to me. So I... You don't have a, a, a value to assign yeah, to I it. Mean, I watched uh, the Dave Grohl... Sonic Highways. Sonic Highways. And I think that... that they talked about that a little bit or they yeah. talked about that scene and how that was so important to him and their music and mm-hmm. you could yeah cause he's, a, he's a DC guy yeah yeah and I just I remember watching being like wow I have I, I feel like uh, one of the, the ladies from Joe vs. the Volcano like I have I have no response to this <laughs> well it, it certainly I think minor threat would be on the Mount Rushmore of bands that their fans won't shut up trying to get you to listen to or defend even if you're not putting them in a position to have to defend right. it so definitely would agree with that alright uh, Michael let's hear your fourth we're the top of the fourth inning my last one on uh, my Mount Rushmore is the category of huh only in one album hmm 
And uh, that album is The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Lauren Hill. I was telling my wife about this, and she said, oh, yeah, because she went crazy. Oh, she oh, she gone. Um, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it seems like the success of what she had with that album and the music industry and uh, public life in general kind of drove her away from it. If you look at this album, it was massive. It won just about everything you could win for the Grammys in 1999. Um, it was nominated for 10 Grammy Awards. She was the first woman ever nominated for this. It was the first album, uh, first hip-hop album that won for uh, Album of the Year. It won Best New Artist, R&B Song. It's amazing that an album could do that and then not have a follow-up album. And it just shows you how much the artist is involved in this. And it's not just market-driven and accolade-driven. It's sure she just – it was too much for her. I think she put out like a MTV Unplugged album and that was about it. Well, I mean, to me, I, I had her on the list. I was a little hesitant because, yes, it was her, her only album. But, of course, had big hits with the Fugees. I think it's interesting for me with her. It's like I remember when that album came out and a couple of things. One, everybody loved that album. Right. It was one of those albums that transcended genres. It wasn't just an urban kind of like soul type thing. It was like everybody loved that album. And when that came out, you thought, boy, Lauren Hill's going to be one of those few artists that actually leaves a successful band and then immediately is just as successful. And then she just sort of fell off the... You know, from a you know musical standpoint, fell off the place, face I of mean, the earth. There are other important people that won uh, uh, album of the year with the Grammys. Those include also uh, Bob Newhart and Toto, uh-huh. and also various artists mm. from the uh, uh, Oh Brother Where Art You Art Thou, Art Thou soundtrack. <laughs> hey brother, what art you? <laughs> I mean, that was a, that was a that was the uh, the remix album. Of right now, uh, did her film career take off? She was in Sister Act. She did a bunch of stuff before that. She was in Sister Act and Sister... Like, a few of those albums came... Or a few of her uh, acting, acting roles, roles came out before uh, she uh, made it big with the Fugees. Did you know that the Fugees is short for... Refuge. The Fuji, Alba, the Fuji Islands. What? It's actually the same... No, no, you're wrong, Michael. It's actually short uh, for... It's actually short for Mr. Fuji, <laughs> the uh, classic 80s wrestling manager. That's right. Never mind. Never mind. Completely wrong. All right, Richard, what's your fourth? Speaking of never mind... See what I'm going to do here. So I kind of, again, keep up with that whole idea of one and done albums that sort of set this genre and then the band went away and then the, the genre kind of went on without them. Uh, so my last one is Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. It's crazy that that is the only, like, yeah, that is the, that's one of those, that's crazy. Yeah, that's really. Like, people may not know that they had four singles. They had that album. They put out, there's some like EMI would, would every once in a while would mine kind of the back catalog for some live stuff or some crappy outtakes. But in terms of actual studio albums, that's it. And I mean, you can't, I don't think you can overstate how radical the concept of the Sex Pistols was in like 1977. They might have been the last, I don't know, one of the last groups that in music in general incited this sort of cultural panic almost. I mean, kind of almost, I mean, the only thing I could think of really that's comparable was like the whole hardcore rap, NWA, Ghetto Boys, Two Life Crew type thing in the 90s. But before that, I mean, that this was really it. I mean, it was... 
you know, if you look at the press coverage and if you haven't yet, please go see the movie, uh, The Filth and the Fury. It was a Julian Temple documentary came out, you know, I think 15 years ago. But it's incredible just the amount of moral panic that was happening, particularly in the US or the UK, I should say, that it was, you really had the sense that like they thought the whole like society was going to be brought down by this like, you know, punk rock band. Um, and, and on top of that, it's a really good album. I mean, that's the thing. We It's easy to remember all of the kind of social things that went on around the band. It's a really good album and something you can go back and listen to. Please, please forget the reunion tours. Please forget all that. Please forget 50-year-old guys pottering around, clearly just trying to cash in a paycheck. I mean, God bless them. I hope they all have mansions at this point. You know, John Lydon for a while was having was doing like commercials for butter in the United Kingdom. Guys, I'm, I'm glad you guys don't have to do that anymore, but don't, don't come back on tour, please. Can, uh, what kind of butter? Can we get back to it? Was unsalted? It was like a... It was for, Sweet cream? It was like the British Butter Council. And they asked him about it. I'm and he's, out. Never mind. Yeah. They asked him about it later. He said, well, they offered it to me and I, I eat butter. So it's not like I was lying about it. I'm a I'm a Land O'Lakes guy. I'm yeah. strictly uh, Native American butter. I, I I go for I can't believe it's not bollocks myself. All right, we'll save that for the Mount Rushmore of dairy products, uh, which we'll be doing inevitably. So normally at this part in the podcast, we might share our Mount Rush less, but we want to invite you, the listener, to join us on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media venues like our website and send in your suggestions, what you think we might have missed, what you uh, want to inform us about. You know, we share a lot of trivia on this podcast, and I know you are a knowledgeable crew out there. So inform us. Let us know what we might have missed. Except for you, Bill. You, you don't know anything. Oh, I hate don't, Bill. Don't, don't write in. <laughs> so uh, normally I take a little while to ponder uh, who I think vastly out elected the other person or uh, which, who got the whoop can of whoop ass opened up on him. But Michael is clearly the incredible loser here. Uh, Richard gave me an edumacation in terms of not just uh, one and done bands, but musical movements that each of these one and done groups initiated or brought an end to in the case of the Sex Pistols or opened his mind and let him know that hard, heavy music didn't have to be ACDC or whatever. So... uh, Richard Manfredi is the winner of this episode of the Mount Rush. So would you say this was the miseducation of Michael Winfield? You clowns haven't even heard the avalanches, so I didn't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's the false teeth one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah. What? What? All right, so... Uh... <laughs> If you'd like to follow us online or listen to past episodes, please check us out at mtmtrushmorepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mtrushmorepodcast or Twitter at mtrushmorepod.com.